welcome to episode 447 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. And if you're wondering what happened to episode 446, it's coming along at just about the same time as this. It's my interview with Chris Inglis about the cyber strategy that the government has released. But we're doing our regular news roundup, and we're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're going to express views that don't reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, or our pets. Joining me for the news roundup, Justin Sherman, a senior fellow at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy, which I disrespected a couple of episodes back, and he's here to defend it, and the founder of Global Cyber Strategies. Also, Nick Weaver, researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley and the Chief Mad Scientist at Scary Technologies. And Maury Shank, thank you, Maury, for your short introduction, a London-based lawyer and technologist. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for the day. Let's talk about at least a little bit. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because we'll have a whole hour on it with Chris. The most significant thing I I think most people believe in the new U.S. cybersecurity strategy is talking about software liability for bad security. Nick, how plausible is this? I think politically it's not going to happen anytime during the Biden administration, at least not the first term. But as a policy matter, can we actually do that? I think so, but it's difficult. There's a reason why this is called the third rail of software laws, and the administration has decided to urinate on it. Because on one hand, so much software is so deliberately bad. Default passwords, using C and C++. There's basically a litany of a dozen things in a computer security lecture that are, if my students go do this, my spirit will reach out through the computer and strangle them. But at the same time, you run the risk of overcomplicating things and over-regulating and making it so that you don't want to do anything at all. So Europe has been proposing a framework where my understanding is you'd need outside third-party certification if it's within certain categories that would include Linux. But what is Linux? How do you certify something like this? And as an individual, if I end up having liability for open source software I create and give away for free, I'm not going to give it away anymore. So there's a huge potential can of worms, and I don't know how to navigate it. So they thought about some of this. They clearly intend to impose the liability on the biggest player and the, the player that's making the most money out of the software product. So that would not usually be the drafter of an open source tool, but whoever compiled it and turned it into Android. Yes, but that doesn't necessarily stick around between the start and the end of the legislation process. And it might very well be that, say, the author of Log4j ends up being liable for all the products that used it. And that would have been yeah. a total nightmare. 
Yes. And we all remember the XKCD cartoon. Some guy in Nebraska is in, in deep trouble if this, if this goes through, is the idea. I have one other thought this occurred to me when, I, because two or three people have cited the Buick case. So the Buick case, it's now over a hundred years old, is where Justice Cardozo or Judge Cardozo, as I think he was at the time, said, you know, Yes, I understand you really didn't sell it to the consumer. You sold it to a dealer. You didn't really make the, the wheel. Somebody else made the wheel. But you're Buick, and you've got the ability to prevent this harm, so we're just going to hold you liable. And that method of reasoning swept the country at a time when we were better at bending metal and making real stuff than anybody else in the world. And it's been so successful that we're, we're terrible at bending metal and making stuff. We don't have the, the workforce to do it. We don't have the companies and the skills to do it. And increasingly, I kind of wonder, maybe it's because we, we turned manufacturing into a toxic waste zone for, for people who wanted to make money. I don't think so. As somebody who quite happily driving an American-made car and whose last car was American-made, although with a Japanese nameplate on it, there's plenty of real manufacturing that goes on in the U.S. And in comparing with the Buick decision, I think, imagine a world where the cars deliberately have 10 pounds of C4 stuffed in the gas tank and the steering wheel has a flaming torch on it. The level of care but done But there's careful by instructions in the, you know, in, in the contract you sign when you buy it, there are careful instructions not to let those two things get together. And indeed, not to let somebody run into you. <laughs> Okay, I, I you know it's 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 an idle thought, but we may be getting ready to do to software what we've done to manufacturing, and that means there are going to be a whole lot of competitors in that field internationally who don't take the same approach. Before we move on, I just wanted to say, Stuart, you and I wrote an article twenty years ago where we said this was coming, and you know you make enough predictions, eventually you can be right, but. I think it's coming. And Nick is right about the European approach, which is quite prescriptive. But, you know, it's already been there for cloud service providers or others. And I think the U.S. could take a lighter approach that would still help somewhat with the worst abuses if it was a narrowly tailored standard and do some good. So it's almost certain to take a lighter approach. The Republicans are not going to buy into this cheerfully and silicon valley is going to fight it until it gets it down to the lightest possible touch so you know the our our system is going to produce liability light at best whereas the uk system is producing you know more and more aggressive approaches to silicon valley the online safety bill is if anything getting tougher after signal said they were going to walk if it got too tough maury tell us about signal and then let's talk about how it's getting tougher well you know this idea for harms based regulation of big tech originated in the uk the eu then picked it up with the digital services act but the UK has been a little slower and is going further. And I don't know that it's getting tougher at the moment. I mean, back in November, they had included requiring regulation of things that are legal but harmful. And they took that out. They do have criminal liability for execs of tech 
companies that don't sufficiently regulate illegal content. Where isn't getting- that new? That's that. That's how they got their backbenchers to back off on an even more aggressive amendment. It, so it sounds as though the the government hasn't quite lost control of the drafting process, but they're right on the edge. Yeah, I mean, they, they weakened the liability standard for, for execs, and it, it put down a backbench revolt. I think where it's gotten pretty aggressive is some of the statements, particularly by Michelle Donnellan, who's the culture minister, who's, you know, said stuff like, if you talk about migration to the UK in favorable terms, you are potentially aiding and abetting a crime of illegal migration. And therefore, tech companies shouldn't publish favorable coverage of immigration. So I think I'm going to say on the podcast right now, I think immigrants have a good reason to come to the UK, whether or not it violates the law. Come and get me, Michelle. (laughs) Okay. And I have a saying that you guys might want to go to the U.S., before it ceases to be a United Kingdom and becomes the Republic of Scotland and a United Ireland. Scotland will give him asylum, I'm sure, for for any remarks that are counter to a conservative government. But anyhow, and I didn't answer about Signal. Basically, Meredith Whitaker, the, the president of Signal, has said, well, if you require us to dumb down encryption in order to be able to monitor stuff, which may just be child sexual abuse images, although Ofcom will get to say what that is, the UK comms regulator. Meredith Whitaker has said, well, Signal will leave the UK if that becomes the law. Yeah, I think the UK government would say all we're requiring here is that if you have a product that could be used to harm children, that you take measures, reasonable measures to reduce the impact of that harm. And if you're threatened by that, well, maybe you should be. So there is some doubt about exactly how far the UK government will push its discretionary authority over saying that's not a reasonable measure to protect children. But, you know, we had this fight in Australia and everybody said, well, the sky will fall. No one will ever buy a a product that provides security from Australia because the Australian government has the ability to send people letters saying, we don't think you're doing enough. And they've had that authority for three years and the sky has not fallen. My guess is it's not going to fall here. And the signal is just talking through their hat. That may be the case. I mean, Ofcom will decide. And the thing that people are worried about is device side scanning, which even at the I think they properly note that even if it's only for child sexual abuse images, could be used for other purposes. But if Ofcom doesn't mandate that, and I think that's what a lot of the rhetoric is directed at, is avoiding them mandating that, then the sky will not fall. So we'll come back to that because Meta is doing something and is being brought along to do something that's sort of related to that. But for now, I would like to ask Justin about the story from the Wall Street Journal and and plenty of others saying the U.S. is working on new rules and starting to to brief on new rules that would restrict the ability of companies in the U.S. to invest in certain critical technologies in China. Where do we stand on that, Justin? Yeah, it's it's interesting in part because some of the media reports are, are contradictory, actually. But sort of in short, I mean, right, we've had CFIUS is almost actually 50 years old now, right? In 1975, it was established. So we've had 
inbound investment security reviews for a very long time. And of course, in 2018, under Firma, there was a substantial sort of expansion of the tech and, and data focus of those reviews. So that said, I don't find it that surprising at all that we're saying, okay, amid export controls around China, looking to limit you know, the reach of US tech to the Chinese military apparatus, Let's look at how U.S. investment is touching that. But the the specifics here are that there was a provision in the appropriations bill from last year that the U.S. executive branch needed to develop a report for Congress on what this would look like to say we're going to restrict review and restrict U.S. investments in certain tech sectors in China. So the Wall Street Journal was referencing that Treasury and Commerce are working on that report for Congress. I will say there was a Politico story about a week or two ago that said that the administration is actually not really interested in pursuing this, that they're sort of doing it because they have to, but they actually don't want to put these rules in place. But the journal did add, which is kind of interesting, that apparently Sequoia Capital, I don't know if others are doing this, but has started screening out some potential investment opportunities out of concern for where this might head. So, so you think, you think this, in terms of your, your, your sense on this is that treasury was briefing because it had been instructed to brief, but that yeah. it was briefing as well. We could, but we might not, you know, if we, we had could, to, we we'd do not. it this way, stuff like that, yeah. which is not the same as we're getting ready to. It, yeah. It's not as clear they're gunning ahead. And again, the question as with all these things, you know, Jake Sullivan, the, the national security advisor, likes saying, and others to say this as well, small yard, high fence, right, on these emerging technologies. But I always look at these lists and say, well, when you put everything under the sun on the list, you know, biotech, quantum, AI, software, this, that, again, if we if we were to do this, it gets to the question of, you know, how broad are those security reviews going to be? So I, it's not my impression that the, that the Chinese private sector has lacked for money in development or even yeah. startup money. So it's not clear to me how important it is to cut off American investment. It might be important where the investment comes with expertise. You know, if Intel were doing chip manufacturing investments in China, you'd expect them also to explain to whoever they were investing in how to build chips. And that would be a, a bigger concern. So I, I'm just not sure. You really have to focus this. And once you're done focusing yeah. it, you wonder whether it is likely to be that useful. That said, you know, yeah, sure. The, the guys who do VC investment are not particularly hot on making sure that the U.S. wins any of these races. They want to win them, but they don't care right. who wins it for them. Indeed. So uh, the other thing that I was really astonished by is the Australia Strategic Policy Institute, which is a pretty China skeptical organization, but also you know comes outside of the regular U.S. partisan divides, has done a study that says we actually think China is ahead of the U.S. in 37 out of 44 technologies, and they measure that by papers that have real impact, which means, you know, basically they're measuring citations, I think. And nobody other than U.S. and China are in the race for these 44 technologies. And, you know, you could pick different ones, but they're, they're, they're plausible. And it's pretty scary that the Chinese are already that good in so many areas and that we're among our strengths is quantum computing, which may not even be a thing. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, so that's yeah. that's scary because it means that the real question is whether when China is going to restrict VC investment from China in the U.S. on those technologies. 
Maury, woke AI is now apparently a a thing. ChatGPT got caught saying, sure, you want a, a speech about how wonderful the President Biden is? Here it is. Oh, Trump? Well, I can't do that, Dave. So there's a lot of concern that the guardrails that Silicon Valley is putting for ethical reasons on its AI are just like the guardrails they put on our domestic discourse. It really is about keeping, you know, the the middle of the country down and not letting them be heard. What do you think? Are we actually going to see a legislative or other restriction on how woke your AI can be? I think it's hard to regulate the speech. I mean, I think this is just what the tech companies are going to do. And I don't think this is easily solved. It's the culture wars moving to chat GPT. Even beyond not being able to write a nice song about Donald Trump, there are people who are holding up the ability to convince chat GPT to glorify the January 6 riots as the fact that it's broken. And you're not going to get people to agree on that. There seem to be two camps. One is it's too dangerous to have out there at all, or we should sort of responsibly innovate. Nobody is saying, let it just go free. But there's not a lot of room for compromise there. I think we've got a bit of a battle on it. So I'm, you know, I, I actually increasingly, as I watch how the efforts to put in the guardrails are working, I'm asking the question, well, what the hell? You know, I'm not in the market for Adolf Hitler's endorsements for the 2024 presidential race or whatever you could get ChatGPT to do. You know, the idea that you could could get the machine to do all these hateful things and write this garbage, you kind of say, well, the effort to stop that is so subversive than just saying, well, you know, there's going to be a lot of dumb stuff said ignore it. So I'm I, I'm sort of disinclined to say, well, we really need these efforts to prevent AI from spewing hate speech. If you don't like hate speech, you should punish it. And trying to make it hard for the AI to produce it, you know, it's going to produce a lot of pain and a lot of line drawing where the lines are in the wrong place. And I, I'm just not convinced that this exercise in censorship is working out. Well, it's really a commercial issue. You can buy a completely uncensored version of GPT-3 or GPT-3.5 from OpenAI as a service, and I think Microsoft sells it as well. And there's a real flowering of startups that are building stuff on top of that. And it'll spew all the uncensored stuff, but these are individual, very narrow-focused products. The question is whether OpenAI and Google can release something to the public that's going to spout all kinds of stuff. And that's kind of a commercial decision for them, which gets to the really other interesting story this week was that in the arguments on Gonzalez versus Google, Justice Gorsuch asked whether ChatGPT generated speech would be protected under the current law. By by Section 230. Right, because it's more than just passing it on. It's some manipulation. I think that's a really interesting question. And I think that the likes of OpenAI and Microsoft and Google, who haven't released their own chatbot, are thinking about that possibility. So it, to, the argument would go that I can't be held liable as a publisher for user content. And if I'm publishing it, I'm a publisher. That's their their kind of maximalist position. And it is user content of a sort because basically I didn't say any of these things. I just went out and found other people who had said stuff and mixed and matched and to put it through a blender And this is what came out, but it's all third-party speech plus some algorithms. It's not me at all. So I should get an immunity. 
I think that's probably not going to work because mixing and matching is producing content, although the lunatic argument that uh, Google was advancing is that mixing and matching is just part of what publishers do in order to present the data, and therefore it should be completely immune. And the idea of making these nutty AI engines immune, it just takes bizarre law that we have now for software and for Silicon Valley and applies it to a place where the products could kill us. I agree with a lot of that. I think that there's two problems. One is it's not just mixing and matching. You know, it's a, com well, we don't know what's inside the black box, but it's training where it's just predicting the next word based upon a lot of data. So they are providing the engine that generates the text. And they also want to be able to say that they're not actually repurposing the training data because they'd have massive copyright violations. They want to say we are creating something. Ah, new. good point. That's you're right. They 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 have to say this is not somebody else's data because that would be a, a violation. Yeah, you're right. I I guess uh, although it's Silicon Valley, uh, they'll have it both ways. They're immune for copyright liability, and they get two thirty immunity because they're auto-completing based on what other people have said. And those arguments require that the other side not keep track and not have object permanence. And I think the other sides on that debate have big money. So like, I feel sorry for the Dolly folks who are going to have to go up against Getty Images because it's amazing how well it reproduces the Getty Images logo and even kind of sort of sneaks it into things. Yes. Where you don't even ask for it? Of course. If, would, would it be too cynical to say that then they end up liable to Getty Images, but not to the Gonzalez family, because the Gonzalez family doesn't even have lo lobbyists. So 230 immunity they get, but copyright immunity, no. Except that 230 immunity so far protects against also product liability issues. Yeah. And if your chat robot says, hey, yeah, mix the water into the acid, it's good times, you might have a whole bunch of contingency lawyers coming after you and 1-800-whatever-whatevers. <laughs> okay. TikTok, there was, there was been a couple of developments legislatively. Uh, Nick, the story was GOP rams through TikTok ban bill over Dem objections. I think that might be a little, I mean, there's, there's truth to that, but it was kind of a surprise because the Washington Post was telling us that the resistance to a TikTok ban is growing in Washington. So what's, what's actually going on? Yes, you're finally getting some legislative movement. But at the same time, there's growing realization the problem is, is not TikTok, it's surveillance capital writ large. And how do you say 702 in Mandarin? So many of the issues raised by TikTok are not unique to TikTok or TikTok's ownership, nor even that TikTok is a Chinese company, but apply equally well to Facebook and Twitter and everything else. And I think... TikTok under the hood is trying to take advantage of that too. I don't blame them, but we'll see what happens. So there's a plausible argument that says if the Chinese wanted this data, they they could buy it from people who get it as data brokers rather than collecting it through TikTok or some other large social media platform. And that's plausible, but I, it's also plausible to say we're worried about 
TikTok because of the ownership. And that seems to be what the Republicans on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, I think, concluded. It's interesting. They, they're doing a couple of things. They did pass a ban, but they also tried to fix the Berman Amendment. This is the amendment that says you can't restrict using the sanctions liability people who are simply providing informational materials. And some of the courts that looked at this, I mean, they were district courts, but they they haven't been appealed, said, well, that seems to me that TikTok is in the business of providing informational materials and you can't restrict their ability to, to operate in the United States. And if you think about that from the point of view of growing sanctions against China, having a hole like that in your sanctions program starts to look pretty troubling when you think about the ways in which informational materials could be used by Chinese-controlled media, including it wouldn't, wouldn't be just TikTok, it would be WeChat and, and others. So they're trying to fix both of those. I'm kind of surprised that the Dems are fighting both of those, and it looks to me as though that won't be the case in the Senate, because Senator Warner, who chairs the Intelligence Committee, has been pretty concerned about this for a while and is working on bipartisan bill that I suspect means that it's going to be harder to keep this issue off the Senate floor than it otherwise would be, although you know Schumer can do that. But at some point, he may decide it isn't worth fighting to keep something like that off the floor. Well, yeah, to, to add, I, th I think, as you said, that's exactly, I mean, surprise, surprise that a Politico headline's a bit reductive, that no Dems are, are supporting this. Like you said, you know, there was movement in the Senate at the end of last year, bipartisan, different framework than this Data Act. They called that the Anti-Social CCP Act. So, you know, the poor staffer that had to come up with that acronym. But, but you know, th that one was a bit different than, like you said, the construct of this bill focused on Berman. And there's a lot of discussion in this recent bill called the Data Act on discussion of election interference, how to define election interference, what informational influence on the U.S. would look like. The other bill is very focused on the data aspects alongside content and saying, you know, what would undue influence look like on a foreign company? And I've talked with, with all of these staff quite a bit about these things. But as you said, there's an interest in taking this also beyond TikTok on the part of some to look at WeChat, to sort of think about other risks. So, you know, who, who knows what's going to happen? I, I agree with what Nick said in terms of, of course, the issues are much broader than TikTok. TikTok, of course, twisted that initially to say, oh, nothing to see here at all, which I think is, is not, <laughs> not, not sure either from a risk perspective, right? As you said, the ByteDance ownership does, does change things. But I'll just, just wrap here and just say, I, I do fear, though, a little bit about how the risk assessment logic is going on this stuff. Of course, there are, re there are real security risks we have to talk about vis-a-vis -vis Chinese government data collection. They're, they're stealing a ton of IP, they're collecting a bunch of data on the US, but at the same time, it's really easy to pick a random app or company and come up with some hypothetical scenario in which it's you know a backdoored kind of tool of the state thing. And so I think the process piece of this is, is for that reason, another important question of you know, is the best way to do this really to have congressional staffers writing bills based on what they see in the news or whatnot and sort of doing whack-a-mole? Or do we need to think more about, 
you know, people have issues with CFIUS, but CFIUS or the Commerce Department software reviews or something that's a bit more systematized and, and substantially resourced rather than kind of tackling issues as they come up. So Yeah, although in my experience, first, reading the newspapers and writing bills about it is pretty much what Congress has been doing for a hundred years. And whacking moles is often how you get started on the the more systematic approach. First, you whack a few moles that seem obvious, and then people say, yeah, but what about that other one? And you say, ah, I, I think I need a system for figuring out which moles to go after. So I'm not sure it's really a good criticism to say you've picked, you know, a, a two or three really egregious instances and you're regulating those, but there could be more. Why don't you do something more holistic? Yeah, good idea, but it might not be a reason to not take a, an approach that focuses first on the mole that's in front of you. No, mole whacking is not bad. Yeah, just just to say, I think going forward, that framework question, like you said, is also important. And, and you know, some, some members, I think, like to sort of zoom past that and, and not think about, like you said, okay, if we're doing whack-a-mole now, what's the next step? How do we do this in a more systematized fashion? So this is something that we don't see much because we don't, you know, pay enough attention to Canada. But if you're Thinking about what people like Mark Warner, the Chairman McCall are worried about, there was a leak in the Gobin Mail in Toronto about what the Canadian Intelligence Service thinks the Chinese government did 18 months ago to try to influence the Canadian election for Premier. And it's really pretty troubling. It's a it's a very, you've got Chinese officials saying to each other very candidly, we know who we want to help. We want to help Trudeau's government, but we want to help them into a minority government so that they are beset by infighting and can't focus too much on us. And the way to do that is to get people who've immigrated from China to back the PRC-designated candidates who will mostly be liberals. And we're going to do it by saying things like, if the conservatives get in, they're going to cut off the university seats for immigrant Chinese, and your kids won't get into school. Very, very sophisticated campaigns aimed at the Chinese-Canadian community, and some other things as well. My favorite was, why don't we get businesses that are beholden to us to hire overseas Chinese students to, quote-unquote, work in the business, and then, quote-unquote, volunteer for the candidates that we support, and then we'll have this whole workforce that will be working to turn out the vote for the candidates that we have chosen, and, you know, in, in this case, if they're focused on Chinese communities, they don't even have to speak a lot of English. It's, it's, a, it's surprising and surprisingly effective, I think. They, I think the conservatives concluded that they lost eight seats in the parliament because of losing Chinese communities. China is very aggressively pursuing every ability to affect all of the governments that they think they have a strategic competition with. And they're going to do these things here. If they haven't done it all already, it's because they want to be a little more subtle with the biggest of their opponents. But there's no reluctance to do it in the West. Very troubling. Worth reading, for sure. Globe and Mail. 
All right. Speaking of influencing what happens here, the Chinese got mad at Elon Musk for suggesting that there was a lab leak in Wuhan, along with the Department of Energy, which is the what made the news. Maury, what did China actually say about that? Well, it was just in the Global Times, which is the English language arm of the People's Daily. They basically said, he better watch what he says. So it's kind of, they can do this. I mean, they could, he's got a lot invested in selling Teslas in the Chinese market. It's one of, it's probably their second biggest market yeah. or maybe even coming up to first. So they can do it if they want. I, I doubt they'll pull the plug yet, but I think Elon might back off on this one. Yeah. Well, they have an Elon Musk problem because they also think that Starlink is a really dangerous intrusion on their security. And they've got the idea that maybe they should launch 13,000 satellites that could get to certain orbits first. I didn't quite understand this one, Nick. Can they really suppress Starlink, even if they had the launch capability, which I think is open to question? Why would they want to be able to launch a bunch of satellites now as opposed to five years from now? First of all, this was a very, one of those speculative telephone articles where the original Chinese source probably was like, this is actually a dumb idea. There's basically two concerns of note. The first is, is just Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are trying to hog orbits by just shoving up a huge number of satellites. And so you might want to, if you want to do your own comparable system, start putting up satellites now, even if they're crud, just kind of to reserve space. And the other thing is, is the observation that the Starlink satellites in particular are pretty maneuverable, which means they're also theoretically could be kind of sort of maybe used as an anti-satellite weapon in those orbits at the cost of making those orbits completely uninhabitable and renaming the Kessler cascade to Musk syndrome in the process. So it's really unclear what they're talking about here. But truth be told, my reaction is do it, do it, do it, waste your money because Shannon's limit is real. Starlink will never be a significantly profitable business. And if the Chinese government wants to waste their money spectacularly, we need to encourage it. I think the big thing going on for the Chinese, and it, I agree with Nick's point, but the Great Firewall of China doesn't run on the Starlink network. So yeah. if people can go through Starlink, they get out to the global internet. And Starlink has been game-changing in the mobile satellite industry. It has really lowered the price point. I'm not sure whether we can have three networks, Starlink, Kuiper, and whatever the Chinese build that are all profitable. But I don't think the Chinese care. And Gwen Shotwell just said that Starlink is cash flow positive and going profitable this year. So I think there is a business case there and a big problem for the Chinese if they can't block it. Can you use Starlink in China? I would have thought that, you know, they, 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 could, they can deny a license. And then if you let people complete calls or, or get on the internet from China, you're in violation of Chinese law. That strikes me as not something that I would want to do if I were Starlink. Oh, well, it's illegal. Okay, so it's illegal for the Chinese to do it there. But and I guess they can, particularly with these low Earth orbit satellites, they can certainly geolocate the terminals. But if people smuggle in the terminals, they can get service. You know, I mean, that, that's 
the service in in battlefields in in Ukraine is not being particularly degraded by the Russians, although Ukraine's obviously allowing actually, it. Actually, to- they they somewhat are because it's actually pretty easy with modern electronic warfare capability to say where the ground stations are, and so a lot of the Starlink use is significantly behind the lines because it's pretty easy to drop a missile right onto the transmitter itself. So I wouldn't expect it to be used in China very much to get around the Great Firewall because of both the detectability and that Elon Musk still wants to sell Teslas. Okay. And last Elon Musk question. Twitter's revenue last month in December was 40% below their year-on-year average. He's cut costs more than 40 percent the question is he says he's going to break even by the end of the year but he says a lot of stuff uh, 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 nick what, what what do you think that this is a stable point or are there more losses to come your current api plan does not include access to this endpoint please see https developer twitter.com en docs twitter api for more information code 467 they, they those, don't even have the fail whale broken yeah they morning. don't even yeah. Not only is it broken this morning, it is broken in, in a way that makes it looks like Twitter, in their cost-cutting, forgot to pay Twitter for paying for access to Twitter's own API. And it is throwing up internal API errors that should never be visible because they so screwed up their thing of let's shift the API to try to charge more money because Elon Musk is currently in the... I need to look through my couch for loose change. I know. I'm going to burn down the house and sort the ashes. So you think that they're just going to have more and more fails. And at some point, I mean, the audience has held up pretty well. But at some point, they just lose the audience. And they've already lost the advertisers. And it's just going away and down the drain. I so look forward to the Morgan Stanley era of Twitter ownership. I am not convinced they've lost the advertisers. I think the advertisers pulled back because there were bad headlines. But if the audience is still there, they're going to start creeping back in. Every time I occasionally log into Twitter to keep my account active, the ads are crappier and crappier. They aren't making money on the advertisements. And remember, for all his cost-cutting, Elon Musk saddled a billion-plus-a-year in interest payments that he's not yeah. going to be able At to make. At 15% some of it. That's just staggering. <laughs> yeah. uh, loan uh, shark rates. I don't think Tony Soprano would charge that much. Okay, let's, let's move on to another target, Meta. Meta has come up with a, a tool for dealing with what is called revenge porn. Nick, I ended up thinking that this was a remarkably crappy tool for dealing with revenge porn, but maybe the only thing that's left after all of the lefty civil liberties groups have gotten through discrediting everything else that people want to do. I disagree. And let's first understand that this is basically an additional option. That prior, you could submit... Can you explain exactly what they're doing? My understanding is basically, if you think there are pictures of you in some sexually compromising fashion on the internet or on, on Facebook or the gram, you can send a message to Facebook saying, I found the image, I hashed it with this 
tool that you gave me. And now please make sure this hash never shows up anywhere on the internet. And it's a bit more subtle. So first, the old way that Facebook still supports is you hand them the image and they do the hashing. And that just results in that image hash. Those images are blocked by Facebook. Right. And that obviously, you know, telling people if you're worried about having your naked images displayed around the internet, why don't you send your naked images to us, Facebook? It, It has a certain limited appeal. Yes. So what this is, is instead you calculate the hash on your device, send the hash to Facebook, and then Facebook does the searching. They don't actually guarantee that they'll take it down. Instead, it's basically a flag for further analysis so that they will then examine the image if it actually gets posted. Ah, okay. I was wondering how they would do that. Toss it into their database. So that, and then that makes more sense. Yeah, because otherwise it would just be so trivial to abuse. People would just take every picture of Donald Trump that's ever been created and hash them and say, please take this down. So the idea would be Facebook says, okay, we've got this. We'll scan for it. And if we find it, something that matches the uh, the hash, then we can decide whether it's really revenge porn or it's just somebody who doesn't like Donald Trump. Yes. Okay. And that's, they have that's more to workable. do that because otherwise the system won't work. All right. I, you're right. That's a, a better system and less crazy than I originally thought. All right. Let me give a little bit of time here to Justin, because I I was not very nice about one of the reports that, that Duke has put out, and Justin has done one of these himself, entitled Data Brokers and the Selling of Americans' Mental Health Data, the Exchange of Our Most Sensitive Data and What It Means for Personal Privacy. And this was basically something that was well covered by the press that said mental health data is being sold, and the researcher called up a bunch of data brokers and asked them if she could buy mental health data. And she got a lot of people who said, yeah, sure. My attack was, I don't think you really were fair to the brokers in the sense that a lot of this data is being offered in an aggregate or a de-identified fashion. And all that's not perfect. It is very different from what the newspapers made of the report. They went around saying, your data is being sold. Your mental health data is being sold right now. They're harvesting data that includes patient names and addresses. And one company advertised the names and addresses of people with depression. And so it made it sound as though there's a massive availability of personal data right down to your name and your particular problem. And I just didn't see that in the report, but the report didn't really do a good enough job, in my view, in making clear that there's a defense that a lot of these guys would have, which is that you can't tell who it is that we're talking about, that didn't get as much attention as I thought it should. So, Justin, I've laid out my criticism. What's your response? Well, no. So, so first of all, I mean, was glad to, to hear you all discuss it on the episode a couple of weeks ago. You know, I, I would say a couple of things. First of all, I know you and I have talked about this before as well. I would actually completely agree with you that, you know, this is a really important distinction to make, as you said, analytically between are we talking about, for example, the sale of a list of, of health conditions or something else where the name is in there, where the email's in there, where the home address is in there? 
Or are we talking about something like, you know, it's more aggregated or we're not actually giving over the raw data on a specific person. So that said, I, of course, can't speak for, you know, I didn't write the, the media coverage. And so, as you said, certainly, you know, I'm sure there were outlets. We had coverage in 60, 80 something outlets. I didn't read it all. I'm sure there were many who sort of focused on particular things or other. I would disagree, of course, that that distinction was not drawn in the report. I think, as you said, it's tricky to tell sometimes. And we've certainly seen in our data broker work at Duke a gulf between sometimes what a broker says they have and what they actually offer. And so there sometimes is a gap there as well. But that said, in the report did discuss there were cases where the data offered did have names, did have you know home addresses, did have stuff in there. There were also cases talked about in the report where it is, as you as you said, would fall under the category of quote unquote aggregated data. So it was, and one would literally be something like, here are how many people we think have depression in this area of the country. And so the, you know, the Excel sheet might be a zip code and a number, a zip code and a number, and you never learn, you know, the name from that. So, so I'll just say, you know, of course, I'm disagreeing, I disagree on the, that the report did not flush that out. But, but I agree with the general point that that is an important distinction to make sort of in talking about this ecosystem. And then the other thing I think that's interesting on that front is, you know, there have been a number of computer science papers published in the last five or 10 years talking about the ease with which nowadays you can take data that's quote unquote de-identified under GDPR or some other statutory definition and link it back to a person in terms of, of, you know, combining different data sets. And there was a study in Nature a couple of years ago saying that if you took five or six certain data points on each person in the U.S., you could identify an individual with, with 99% accuracy. So again, agree, it's an important distinction to make. And I think that's, that's something going forward in our project we're going to continue to do as we did in that report. But, you know, it's also interesting to consider, I think, when, you know, a broker might claim things are de-identified and, and then not. And the last point I'll, I'll just say, and, and curious your thoughts on this piece, but we've actually said, and, and credit also to Professor David Hoffman, who, who has said this many times, like, as a research team, we are actually interested in what are the best controls that data brokers have. What does a robust set of controls within the data brokerage ecosystem look like vis-a-vis know your customer, controls on resale and use, screening of advertisements, things of that nature. And we've had, I won't name them here, a couple conversations with some large data brokers about this, where we've attempted to engage in good faith, have offered to write things about documents that they've provided, and they have not been been willing to do so. So all to say, you know, if anyone is interested in listening and, and, and you know, wants to reach out, please do. We're still interested. It's something we're interested in learning more about and writing more about, but have not gotten reciprocal sort of good faith engagement on that front yeah so i can't imagine there's anybody who's having his name no matter what he told you there's no company whose name in this report would have benefited the company they're going to end up tarred with some of the worst stories is my guess it did look to me as though almost everybody asked the researcher what's the purpose of this and Yep. I actually couldn't tell. What did she say? I, I assume the IRB would not let her lie. So she had to say it's for research? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. So we have a bunch of institutional review board ethics controls, as any university does. And in this case, and in others, we're not allowed to be deceptive. So the researcher couldn't say, I'm a New York you know, marketing firm or something that would that would not be permitted. But as you said, you, you know, use phrases which were true, like I'm trying to understand the market for this data or... 
I'm conducting research on health data that's out there for sale. But as you said, we have seen that in other cases as well, where brokers will ask for marketing materials if you're going to contact someone directly, which is kind of interesting. A lot of them do that, of course, for spam compliance and other things with, with laws that exist. But there are there are other cases. The DOJ led a couple a few years ago against three brokers that, that all pled guilty who received those materials from scammers and then approved the sale, the sale of the data. At least the salespeople did because they got commission off it. So sort of a mixed bag based on what we know in the public domain about those those controls. I also can't help thinking that if you tell somebody, I want this data for research purposes, I'm at Duke, that they might say, well, okay, so I know you're not going to have a commercial motivation to start misusing this data. Maybe in this case, we can give you more, more granular data because nobody actually gave you much in the way of data. They just talked about what they might be able to do with it, and obviously you didn't consummate the deal. But it's it's just not clear to me how much you learn from calling people up and saying, hi, I'd like some data for research purposes. Are there circumstances in which you'd give me names and addresses? And be able to generalize that to how people are dealing with commercial actors. Well, as somebody who's actually tried doing this, being honest actually is pretty good because for most of them, the or for too many of them, the test is, do you have a valid credit card? We're looking at various lists of individual interests that did have have names and addresses and tried to correlate it with public postings and the like to see how accurate it was. The other thing is, is you can actually lie to companies. The IRB doesn't force you to get IRB approval to shop at Walmart. And so... I theoretically, I'm not going to do this because it would get me in trouble, but theoretically, I could do the study of how many colleagues can get their local IRBs to approve the Stanford prison experiment as a allowed policy through their IRBs because you don't need to get IRP approval to see if an institution is doing its job. I love that. I'm sure that no IRB would allow you to test whether IRBs really work, but, but it's a great study. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's, let's see if we can wrap this up with like uh, three or four quick stories. Uh, Wired had a story about how Ukraine's war was going to bring autonomous drones to the front lines. I wasn't sure I learned a lot from that. Uh, Nick, obviously, it would be better to use autonomy on drones, and it's likely to happen in Ukraine first, but I'm not sure there was anything else in the, uh, the Wired article that told us more than that. Not really. As somebody who's currently engaged in a business pivot trying to build drones to send to Ukraine that will have the headroom for autonomy, yeah, there's going to be full autonomy really soon now in that space. Yeah. But other than that, yeah, like the Shahedsa jumped up V1 buzz bomb powered by a lawnmower engine. So that's one toy that's going to war. I have to say there's a great story, or actually just a Twitter feed as far as I can tell, pictures of gorillas in Myanmar building cute little Nerf AKs, or at least rifles, with the exactly the colors you'd expect from 3D printing. And I don't know whether there's a bigger story there, but that was a great picture, Nick. Yes, there is. It's the impact of the FGC-9. That stands for Bleep Gun Control. And it's actually a very interesting home printable weapon because it actually works because it isn't just plastic. 
It uses a piece of hydraulic tubing and even includes instructions on how to rifle it to create the barrel. It uses 9mm ammunition, which is pretty plentiful, but it's a closed bolt blowback design, so it's actually a lot simpler mechanically than your standard pistol. And it's not the greatest gun in the world. It's basically something that you use to kill yourself to get a better gun, but it's going to be significant long-term. And the follow-on question is, how much is this going to proliferate when we're in a world where only ammunition becomes the key part because everything else is unregulated components? Yeah. But you know what they say about cameras? The best camera is the one you have with you. And that's probably true for guns as well. So yeah, we're going to see more of these. And soon they'll, we'll, we'll start seeing them in the U.S. as well. Well, okay. no, because they, they're not needed in the U.S. Because, because you can just buy them that are a lot better. And unless you're in a state that restricts private party transfers, even if you're prohibited from owning guns, you just do a private party sale. And the other guy, if the guns ever used in a crime, goes, how was I supposed to know that Jesse Pinkman was the meth king of Albuquerque? All right. This is the story that it's, I'll just flag for listeners because we'll hear about it again. 702, which is the FISA authority that allows the government to collect the communications of targeted foreigners that happen to have some connection to the U.S. They use some, some U.S. service. That has to be renewed by the end of the year, as you've probably heard. And the government is now getting serious about making their case for renewal. They basically say the sky will fall if they don't get it renewed. And, and actually, that's not quite as implausible as those claims often are. They are also, I suspect now, signaling that they recognize they're going to have to do something to restore trust in the intelligence community and especially the FBI on the part of both Republicans and Democrats. So look for changes. I'm talking about things that they should do to restore trust among Republicans. And I think there's plenty they could do. So my guess is there is a, a way to get 702 renewed, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to pass through several painful eyes of the needle to, to get there. And we won't know until December whether it's going to happen. So you'll hear more about that in the future. Nick, LastPass finally explained how they were pwned. And it was a much more sophisticated adversary than one might have thought. That somebody really wanted those LastPass credentials, as you'd expect. What I'm struck by, maybe this is, is worth thinking about. We haven't seen any sign that the credentials have actually been misused, even though whoever stole this got access to all of our credentials on LastPass. And I guess if that hasn't happened, if somebody hasn't weaponized this to make money, it's because they're weaponizing it for national security purposes, and it was the Chinese. Oof, hadn't thought of that one. But yeah, that would be it. Because the other common thing would be attacking cryptocurrency stuff, because that's how you make money if you're, say, North Korea or the 17-year-old in mom's basement. Good point. And so we haven't seen anybody's crypto 
disappear. Kind of surprising because a billion dollars of crypto disappears every week or so. That makes me worry. They've had access to this for a long time. Anyway, so I felt a little sorrier for LastPass than I had before because they obviously, it, you know, it, this was a very hard attack to stop. But now I'm worried about what's happening to all that data. And also, this is why 1Password actually uses a model where they assume that 1Password is compromised. Yeah. Um, yeah, you kind of have to. store the data. And last, I just want to flag the fact that Nick Weaver has a, a paper out on the death of cryptocurrency, which I have looked over, Nick, and it's really good. It, I mean, it's a very clear argument, which is that cryptocurrency was designed to solve problems that it can't and will never solve. So the idea that we should be allowing an unregulated innovation in this space is hopeless. All we're going to get is unregulated scams. And more so that although they disguise things in technobabble, so if you want me to go on and on about ZK snarks and metastability and consensus algorithms or quantum flux destabilization of the warp core field, I can under the hood, it's basically half a millennia of financial failures that we already have regulations to address because all those regulations have clear duck tests. So if there's no innovation to worry about stifling and the existing regulatory tools already exist, regulate away. Okay, Nick, thank you. Justin, Maury, this is great. For our listeners, please send your comments to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or leave a review on iTunes or Spotify and we'll read it on the air as long as I see it and it's entertaining. This has been episode 447 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Cyberlawpodcast.